Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum. The forum takes place in Vienna in the middle of November. It's where hundreds of people gather every year to discuss the latest trends in companies, organizations, and society, inspired by the great management thinker, the late Professor Peter Drucker. He was born in the city. He went on having formative ideas about how society works into his 90s, and he died in 2005. And this year's forum theme is the Entrepreneurial Society. With me for this podcast is one of the forum's main speakers, Professor Clayton Christensen from Harvard Business School. Professor Christensen made his name with his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, which pushed into public prominence the idea of disruptive innovation, which is perhaps now a little bit too fashionable. But his latest book continues the innovation theme. It's called Competing Against Luck. Professor Christensen, you and your three fellow writers are attempting to bring some system, some sense of purpose, to the very mysterious business of corporate innovation, aren't you? That's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, How? This luck you're competing with, this is just the random not understanding the world properly that uh, most corporations still have when they embark on an innovation quest? That's right. And I I think what's happened is we have a propensity when we observe phenomena that we will correlate what we're seeing with what the result is without trying to understand at a deeper level what causes things to happen. When we develop a new product and we put it into the marketplace, we've done our very best to understand the market, understand the customer, look at the demographics, do the financials, and we think when we put it into the market that it'll be successful. But the data is that about 80% of the time, they don't work and they fail to become financially viable. The question is, is innovation intrinsically unpredictable? Despite our best, we will lose most of the time. Or is it predictable, but we just haven't taught people how to find the causal mechanism behind the decision to buy the product? And the luck that you say we're competing with is this, this random, this, yes, very deliberate, but very unthought-out way of doing innovation. You say, no, we can systematize it if we think about things in a different way, through a different prism. That's right. And there is another theory that it competes against, and that is if we innovate close to the core, and we don't try to do too innovative to get away from the core, by going close or incremental, then it's more predictable. Of course that's right. The question is, what causes us to fail if we go too far afield? And we've decided that we actually can innovate away from the core if we understand the job that customers are trying to do. What I hire the product for. That's the essence of your book, a one-sentence summation of it. That's, that's exactly what it, we're, we're trying to do. You can't see us over the podcast, but if we were in person, what you would see is that I, Clay Christensen, a customer, 
have all kinds of characteristics and attributes. You know, I'm 64 years old, I'm two meters three tall, I weigh too much, I married a wonderful woman, we have five kids, some of them went to the wrong schools and not Harvard, and you know, there I have all kinds of characteristics and attributes, but... You're an individual person with all this stuff, which I could get down if I... Had a clipboard, couldn't I? That's exactly right. But none of my characteristics and attributes have yet caused me to, to hire the Financial Times today. There might be a correlation between the, my propensity to buy the newspaper, but our, my characteristics don't cause me to buy the Times, nor do my characteristics cause me to buy any product or service. So I can do a lot of analysis, and data flows are meaning that I'm getting now picking up if I'm somewhere you uh, shop or Mm -hmm. have a relationship with a vast, unthinkable amount of data about you, but that still doesn't address this core thing, does it? What causes us to buy a product or pull it into our lives is, you know, darn it, stuff happens to us every day. Jobs arise in our lives, and we have to get these jobs done. And some of the jobs are incremental, predictable, daily jobs that we need to do. But others of these jobs are unpredictable, dramatic, mind-bending jobs. But whenever we have a job to do, then we have to find something that we could buy or use or pull into our lives to get the job done. And understanding the job is the causal mechanism behind our decision to buy. And that's why it should guide our innovations. Because when you first sort of encounter this concept, it sounds just like a clever word, job. I hire a product to do a particular job. But in fact, you're saying that all those different attributes of you and the data now accumulated about you is articulated around the need, the job you need the product to do when you hire it. All those other random things that I can pick up with my clipboard are articulated by the need. Yes, or the insight that you can give by analyzing the data will give me correlations with the job to be done. But the characteristics and attributes don't cause me to buy. And understanding the job is what allows me to develop a product that causes customers to then buy it and pull it into their lives. Is that an incremental change? You talk about milkshakes at McDonald's. Uh, That was incremental rather than a brand-new product for a, a brand new job to be done. So if you want to improve the probability that my product will be very successful, I need to understand first, what's the job that arises in my customer's life. And the job has a functional dimension to the job, but most products also have an emotional and a social dimension to the job. And if I understand the job on those three dimensions, then I can ask another question, which is, okay, so if that's the job, what are the experiences in purchase and use that we need to provide the customer so that they will sum up to nailing the job perfectly. And if I understand the experiences I need to provide the customer, then and only then can I say, all right, so what do we need to integrate together and how do we integrate them so that we can provide the experiences that we need to provide the customer to get the job done? So a milkshake turned out to be, when you looked at it hard, not just a drink that you had with a burger. That's exactly right. The job to be done in the morning was most of the customers who hired the milkshake 
had a long and boring drive to work. And they just needed to do something when they were driving to stay awake and to stay engaged. And while they were wasting time, at least they had something to do with their other hand to fiddle around and eat things that would help me stay full for the whole morning. Otherwise they had uh, hunger pangs or something because milkshake is also a food as well as a drink at 10 o'clock and that addressed that uh, sort of fairly physical obvious thing. And then what do you do at McDonald's to change the role of the milkshake in the way they uh, present their offering? It needs to be more viscous in the morning than in the evening. Because you've got time to spend slurping it as you go to work. That, that's right. Longer is better. And then you move probably the dispensing machine from behind the counter, move it to the front of the counter, and install a swipe card, a prepaid swipe card, so commuters can just dash in gas up and go and never get caught in a line when they're late for work. Because they wanted it for something that wasn't what you think of when you think of the Golden Arches. They wanted the milkshake just for that. And you did that or they took your advice? They did it in part of the company, not in other parts of the company. And it worked though? Oh, it was it's a spectacular success. Just by redefining the job that a milkshake was hard to do. That's right. And from the customer's point of view, you could see from the customer's point of view who they compete against. Because if I think that I'm just in the business of making milkshakes, then that means if I'm McDonald's, I compete against Wendy's and Burger King and and so on. And these are an ancillary part of my main point, which is the burger and the fries, I presume. That, that's right. That's the way they think about it. But the way, from the customer's point of view, sometimes I hire a milkshake to do the job. Sometimes I hire a bagel to do the job. And sometimes I hire bananas to do the job. And the job is, as we've described, so from the customer's point of view, you compete against very different products than if you think about your business defined by products themselves. So McDonald's milkshakes are competing with a banana. That's correct. For in the customer's point of view. So the job then, the job of the company, not the job of the milkshake, is to become a better banana some bagel substitute. That's right. And when you look at in those terms, you know exactly whether you are ahead or behind of the competitors from the customer's point of view. Sometimes you compete against nothing. So I, I drive to work. I have this job to do. That is, I, I want to be sure I don't fall back asleep. I need something to do with my empty hand. I know that I'll be hungry by 10 o'clock, but I can choose not to hire anything to get that job done, but just hope that I don't fall asleep. So in a lot of ways, we compete against nothing, and competing against nothing is, is a formidable competitor. Now, Peter Drucker, the late Peter Drucker, did say something which very much addressed this point, and it's a resonant phrase, isn't it? He said, um, the customer is rarely buying what the company thinks it's selling them, and that's... Uh, that's an extraordinary remark, actually. It truly is. And one of the puzzles that I'm not sure we, we nailed perfectly in this book, Competing Against Luck, Peter Drucker said that. There was another important professor at the Harvard Business School named Ted Levitt, and he said people want a quarter-inch hole, not a quarter-inch drill. And it's the very same thing that Drucker said a decade or two earlier. And then we're saying the same thing again. But it has to be said over and over again because companies don't get it. That's right. That's right. And there are reasons 
why we try to lay out in the book, but there are reasons why, over time, a successful company and their executives, little by little, will more and more frame the business in terms of products and customers, not the job to be done. And they think of themselves as, oh, we make products in this class of products, and we compete against people who make the same product, and we think our products are better, and this is the way most people think about their business. Build a better mousetrap. That's right. Nobody would, nobody could argue that Drucker and Levitt and Christensen were wrong, and yet we don't follow that advice. And the reason why is that our understanding of the job to be done or what the customer is trying to get done You only observe it by watching what they do. And you need to understand the context in which they experience the job to be done. And the context doesn't create podcasts to tell everybody in the world about the context. The data about the context and about the job to be done is passive data. But if you're going to succeed, you have to organize around the job. And then once you launch your product into the market, you as the manager are all of a sudden surrounded by data that just swirls around us. And the data is data about customers and competitors and products and revenues and costs and distribution. And all of these dimensions swirl around us as data. And managers have to respond to data. And this kind of data about customers and products and composition, that kind of data is broadcast everywhere. It's just in your face. Whereas understanding about the job and the context is passive data and you lose your vision of the job to be done because of the the flow of data that takes control of your life. And yet if you take a good product and you build on it the second box in your diagram of uh, Mm -hmm. emotional uh, awareness and then make it well and distribute it well, there's a top point where it does become clear again, when this job done becomes a brand, and suddenly everybody understands it. Yes, exactly right. IKEA is your great example. The question being... I found my apartment, and I need to furnish my apartment or my room tomorrow. That's the job. And when you realize that you have this job to do, then you ask the next logical question. Oh, geez, this is the job. Where can I go to get the job done? And it turns out that if when you ask that question, if you if you find yourself in that job that, that job to be done, is there a brand that just pops into your mind that would cause you to go there to get the job done? Well over ninety percent of people would say IKEA. When I have that job to do, IKEA is designed to nail the job perfect. So when it gets to the brand level, the famous brand level, then we understand it all over again, even though People deep in the corporation don't know how to use routine, ordinary, passive information. It's weird that, though, isn't it? I mean, it's it's staring us in the face. Yeah, that's right. And a good, we call it a purpose brand, because the better you can articulate the purpose for which you would hire this product, it guides the customers. Ladies and gentlemen, we actually don't want you to buy this product for other jobs to be done because it's not designed to do those jobs well. You need to communicate to the customer what to hire it to do 
Because then, when I am able to review my experience with IKEA or somebody, they will love you because they hired it for a job they needed to get done. And that two-way communication is really quite an important idea in the theory about building brands. And that is when and where should you hire this and when and where should you not hire this. Is this thesis, illuminating though it is, mainly about innovation in established companies and corporations, or can you also apply it to startups and disruptive innovators coming right from outside with a uh, completely apparently new idea? Can they still do a job done, or don't they invent the job to be done and then make the product or service that fulfills that purpose? Now, the theory is just as applicable, if not more so, to start-up companies as in established companies. They apply applicably to both. The theory is very useful as we try to raise successful families. It's very helpful when you're thinking about religion in your life. So it's, it's not something that is a tool for some people and not others, but when people have... If they need to be successful in bringing an innovation in any context, thinking about it in this way, we, I think, is really quite useful. Now, you're going to be talking about these sort of ideas, this sort of job idea, at the Drucker Forum under the umbrella topic of the value of innovation, which still has to be stated these days, does it, the value of innovation? Or is it just the, the kind of innovation that people attempt and can't do, the 80% that fails? Yeah, I have decided try to n never use the word innovation because it needs to have an adjective in front of it because there are different types of innovations. And the causal mechanism in every case is they have a job to do. That's generally applicable. But the types of innovation have a big impact in how you need to take it into the market. And so one type of innovation we call disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovations transform products that historically are so complicated and expensive that only the people with money can buy and use it. These kinds of innovations make it so affordable and accessible that many more people are able to buy and use a product and use it in their lives. And those kinds of innovations, affordability and accessibility, are the kinds of innovations that create growth. Because if more people can buy and use a product, you have to hire more people to make it and distribute it and sell it and service it. And then a second type of innovation we call sustaining innovations. They make good products better, and they help your company stay vibrant. But they don't create growth. Because if I sell you my next best product, you don't buy my last great product. And then a third type of innovations are efficiency innovations that allow us to do more with less. So we need to think about how these three types of innovations impact our ability to grow in the world. But the principle, what's the job to be done, applies to all of those. To all of them, that's right. And in a market, in a company, in a family, in an industry, they, it all applies. Well, many thanks to Craig Christensen from Harvard Business School. The new book is Competing Against Luck. He'll be at the Global Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.